them to John as we continue in our sermon series of looking at the Gospel of John. It seems like it's been a while, but Pastor Matt preached most of John chapter 11 for us as we looked at how Jesus raised a man from the dead, which is a phenomenal thing. If you want anything to show your power and your authority, it would be to take a four-day-old person and all the smell that came with that and make them alive again. Nobody has ever done that. So when Jesus comes along and he says earlier in John, he says, I have the authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. He proved it when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And that brings us hope as well. A great amazing hope for us as well. But as we continue on in John, we'll be in John chapter 11 verses 45 all the way to 12 verse 11. As we look at the outcome, the ramifications of what happens when Jesus raises someone from the dead. You know, great events produce differing reactions among different people. You know, when we think of back in 2001, when the jets flew into the World Trade Centers, we mourned with our brothers and sisters to the south, but other people rejoiced at the news. You see how different the reactions are. Or you could think of a political election, because we all have our opinions. You know, one side wins and they begin to plan, right? And immediately, once that one team wins, the other side that loses begins to plan how they can be a pain in the agenda, a thorn in the side of the ones who won. Great events produce differing reactions among differing people. And here we see the outcome of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And we do see two outcomes that happen out of this. And as I was saying, Pastor Matt looked at Lazarus being raised from the dead a few weeks ago, and it was a polarizing event. It was a majorly polarizing event. There were only two options that came out of Jesus raising uh, Lazarus from the dead. Either you believe Jesus to be who he said he is, or your heart became even harder and you rejected it. You rejected him completely. Let's follow along with me as we read from John 11, verse 45 and following. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what had happened, who had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly, among the Jews, 
But when they but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country of Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself for what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to set Lazarus, uh, to kill Lazarus, he, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, I just thank you for today. I thank you for the chance we have to gather together to worship you. And Lord, we pray for other churches that are gathering in the same way we are. And Lord, we pray that the gospel, that your gospel would go forth from those pulpits this day. That your people would be reminded of who you are. I specifically think of Summerside, Lord, and that you would continue to use them for your glory as they seek to be faithful disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. So I pray for Pastor Devin and the elders there as they seek to shepherd the flock. May you bless them as they seek to be faithful to what you have called them to do and to be. But Lord, as we continue to worship you, I pray that your word, that I would preach your word. And there's no way that I can do this on my own. So Lord, will you make this turn out well? By your spirit, Lord, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. So as we're reading, here is yet another example of what it looks like when people don't want Jesus. What do people choose when they don't want Jesus? In verses 45 to 57 of chapter 11, we see political power or Jesus. There's a tension that begins to continue to rise. You can kind of feel like there's an elastic just being pulled and pulled and pulled. And now it's just about to snap. There's a confrontation that is happening between the religious leaders of this time and Jesus. And it all revolves around this point that Lazarus was raised from the dead. And they're afraid. 
their worry, their concern. Well, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our position? What's going to happen to our nation, to our temple, to everything that we have? What is going to happen? And as I read this, have you ever wondered why some people who hear the gospel reject it? Here we see how deeply seated the sin of unbelief can be. They saw the man walk out of the tomb. And they still did not believe. And this is a condition that can only be overcome by the saving grace of God. The outcome of what Jesus did is that many would believe. Because again, what would be the proper response to Jesus raising someone from the dead? Remember, he was dead for four days. It's not like he just had a little, you know, whack on the head and someone laid him down for a little bit. He was dead. Like dead, dead. Smelly dead. Four days is a long time. And the response for some was that they believed. If he has the power to raise people from the dead, he has the power to lay down his life and take it up again. See, and that's what they began to be afraid of. This was like the crowning achievement of Jesus right here. This is the proof of he's going to lay down his life for his people and he will be able to take it up again. Everything he has said will happen and now they're freaking out. They're worried. Maybe they're thinking of John 10, verse 18, which says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And here's the proof. The man who's reclining at table with me. In verse 46, Jesus continues on, because some of the people did not believe. Some of them go and they go tattletale on Jesus. Like, I really don't like tattletales. So, you know, like even when my kids come and tell me about something that my kids did, I kind of, I get them in trouble too. Because they tattletale. Like, I don't want like, Pride is the root of tattletaling. But here we are, once again, these people are freaking out. They go tell the chief priest all that Jesus had done, pointing their fingers. And so the chief priests and the council, they gather together. They gather together for the single purpose, only one purpose. How are we going to get rid of Jesus? What are we going to do about this situation that's happening here? And they're freaking out about what is going to happen. And these are two groups of people. These are groups of people that are usually at odds with one another. They don't even like each other, but now they're suddenly united for one single purpose, and that is get rid of Jesus. Let's kill him. Let's get him out of here. And Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead was a double result. Faith in some and resistance and unbelief in others. We see this in our world all the day long. We present the gospel Look what Christ has done. Look at my own life. And someone whom you may love comes back and says, so? Or maybe something worse. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 3, verses 15 to 16, which says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a vile lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 
the sin of unbelief was so rooted that for some reason they could not see how Lazarus was walking around who was dead for four days. They were concerned in verse 48 with the loss of political power. If they don't do something about it, he will win the approval of the people. And they were unwilling to accept Jesus if it meant giving up what they treasured most. So let's paint a picture of the climate that was going on. They were afraid of the Romans taking away their place and their nation, the temple and their people. The religious leaders were subject to Rome. And they had, Rome had intervened once already by taking away one of their chief priests. So there was a legitimate fear that was happening here. And they had the chance to embrace the one who could free them from oppression, but they chose to keep it all status quo. They chose to protect a building, the temple, which was important granted, because it pointed to the hope of the kingdom, of God's kingdom. But instead of welcoming the ruler of the kingdom, they wanted to kill him. So Caiaphas comes in verse 49, and he starts with an insult, because that's a great way of leading people. And he says to them, you know nothing at all. You know nothing at all, as he says in verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And here is when irony begins to be displayed. They wanted to eliminate one innocent person, and they were going to use that excuse that if we get rid of this one person, if we get rid of him, then everything's going to be okay. We'll be able to keep our place and we'll be able to keep our nation. If we just get rid of Jesus, we'll be okay. But they completely forgot about what God's word actually says. Because in Proverbs 17, 15, it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Do you see how blind they were? See, we can struggle with that, can't we? What happens when something is done or said that we just simply don't like? It's not rooted in the Bible. It's more of an opinion. And we become so blind to what is happening. Caiaphas doesn't see that what he is about to say actually points to the redemption that Jesus will offer on the cross. As he says in verse 51, it doesn't even happen because of himself. I like irony. I don't know if you do, but it always makes me laugh. I like websites like The Onion or Babylon Bee. I don't know why. Probably because of my dad and his influence on my life. But I love irony. I like it. It makes me snicker. And there's always truth to irony, right? It always makes you think. It gives you good food for thought. But do you see the irony of what John is doing here? Here's Caiaphas, right? Think about this. Here's Caiaphas, the high priest of the very group God will use to accomplish his goal of redeeming a people for himself. Their job, their goal is to kill Jesus, and they think it's all about them. 
But he comes and he makes a prophecy that a man will be sacrificed for the sake of a nation. And that's what Jesus Christ does. Because we're all sinners. We're all born sinners. We're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And sin permeated us like a cancer. We're all affected by it. There is not one person in this room or in this world that's born innocent. We are born sinners. Separate from God. And because of our sin, we deserve one thing and one thing only. And this is something that we struggle with as our society because we all act like we're entitled all the time. We deserve hell. But here Jesus Christ, he steps down from his throne to pay the price for us. And Caiaphas speaks of that. That whoever will repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be saved. And Caiaphas points to that, not because of something he wanted to say, but because God was using him as an instrument for his redemption plan. Which is another note. Do you think you can overthrow the will of God? They thought that they were doing something within their own realm. But Psalm 2 clearly tells us that God sits in heaven and laughs in in derision of those who plot and scheme against his saving purpose in his son. So let me ask you this question. Whom does Caiaphas hurt the most by rejecting Jesus and seeking to have him executed? Caiaphas doesn't win against Jesus. Jesus is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. You think you could win against Jesus? Jesus is the one who is more powerful than even death. And Caiaphas only hurts himself by choosing his place and his influence. He has excluded himself from God's salvation. And as we continue on, there's such a hostility with the leaders. It gets more intense that Jesus begins to withdraw because his time has not come yet. And as it is the Passover, the Passover actually passes, points to the Lamb of God. The very person that John the Baptist said earlier, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who will be sacrificed. So let me ask you this. What are you choosing today? What are you concerned with? Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead was a polarizing event. What we see is that there are only three options, I think, that come from this. The first one is this, avoid. Just like the crowd before who went to the religious leaders or don't, who don't have an opinion. They just keep living their life in the status quo. But there's a problem here. You can't avoid Jesus. He raised someone from the dead. The evidence of Jesus is too strong. Any honest look at the facts of Jesus' life only point to who he says he is and exposes more of who we are and how dead we are without Jesus who gives life. Another option is we oppose. And the reality is if you avoid, you're doing the same thing as opposing. There's no sitting on the fence. But you could oppose him like Caiaphas or the Sanhedrin did the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But when you do that, you join the ranks of history's greatest losers. Every person, think about what you know of history, 
every person who has opposed Jesus is gone. His church is still here. His church is still here. I was reminded about that this week, about how dire things can feel for those who are Christians, especially in North America. The church is still here, and God is still working. Jesus' church and the gospel stands, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Psalm 2, again, verse, verses 2 to 4, reminds us that God laughs at those who try to plan to oppose him. In our world, this is kind of an important thing. In our world, if you're young enough, if you're on social media, you can get a job, I think it's a job, by being something called an influencer. And, and like, this isn't small change. Right? This is a lot of money that goes on here. And their job is to sit on social media and influence people. That's what they do. That's how they make their money. That's how they pay their bills, is to influence people. So their whole object is to make sure that they get more followers so that they can influence more. Do you see something that's kind of corresponding to the fear of the Pharisees? I was reminded about this uh, a while ago. I was listening to a podcast called How I Built This with a guy named Guy. <laughs> guy Ray. And he was interviewing these groups, this group of men called Dude Perfect. And I don't know if you've heard of Dude Perfect. They're one of the biggest YouTubers on YouTube. Our family loves them. They're great. They do trick shots and sport things. And they're clean. They're fun. See, there's some parents who are shaking their heads. We, we're all, we got this. But Dude Perfect, as I was listening to this hour-long interview with Dude Perfect, by the time that they were done, were proclaiming the gospel. They got like 100 million followers on YouTube. In our day and age, to share the gospel on a public platform like that generally gets you in a lot of trouble. But here they are in this interview, which is also has another few million, hundred million followers as well, proclaiming the gospel that they believe in all that they do is because of what Christ has done for them. That Christ died for their sins and he rose again. And they clearly articulate that and they proclaim it. But if their treasure was based upon their followers, they would never have done that. They would have opposed Jesus ultimately. And I've seen that. I've seen that with other people on YouTube. Those who proclaim Jesus Christ at one point, eventually they just give up. Because their treasure is also where their heart is. The other option, you avoid, you oppose, you believe. If you and I understand who Jesus is, the only option is the third. Believe on Jesus and follow him. But you're going to come to me one day and say, well, this will mean surrender of my lifestyle to Jesus. And my, op my, my response to you would be like, yeah. That's exactly what that means. I'm glad that you understand that. Yes, it does mean that you'll have to surrender your lifestyle to Jesus. Jesus is our Savior only to those who take him as Lord. Do you understand this? He will summon you to the cross, and by losing your life, you will gain it in resurrection triumph. 
When you surrender to Jesus, you won't be a victim of history like the tattletale crowd. You won't be an enemy of history like the religious leaders. None of those things. You will be a beneficiary of God's saving plan for history through the life and death of his only son, Jesus Christ. Your life will gain real significance. And in the end, Jesus will receive you into everlasting glory. I can't wait to be face to face with the one who gave everything for me. What are you choosing today? Your position? Your influence? Your opinion? Or are you choosing Jesus? Because if you choose Jesus, it does mean that you have to give. So Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leader had a choice, power and influence or Jesus, and they chose power and influence. And what are you choosing today? In verses 12, verses 1 to 11, we see another option. We see money and power or Jesus. Money or power in Jesus. The scene changes a bit as Jesus moves from the wilderness to Bethany, just within reach of his enemies. In Matthew 26, verses 6 to 13, it shows us another angle of what is going on right now. The outcome is, is Judas going to the religious leaders, asking them how much they are willing to give him to betray Jesus. This is a different instance than what we see in Luke 7, but it's the same account that we see in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, just in a different angle. And I love the picture that John, the writer of this, is saying. He says in verse 1, Six days before the Passover, Jesus there came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, doing what Martha does, And Lazarus, Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. That's amazing. You see Jesus' love. Jesus dining at the table with the one he restored to life. Kind of something we get to look forward to if you are in Christ. In verse 3, we see what Mary begins to do as the outcome of this. She, she takes this ointment, this perfume, this expensive perfume, and she begins to pour it on Jesus' feet. So you need to understand the picture that is coming out here. Touching people's feet is gross, okay? I don't care. You can ask my wife. Like when she was pregnant and needed those foot rubs, I was like this the whole time. I was like, so gross. <laughs> I don't like feet. I had this youth who's not a youth anymore once. I, I think she's like close to 30 by now. And, uh, and she, she always was barefoot and she would always like put her feet, oh no, it's gross. But that's the culture that we were in. The bottom slave would be the person who washed people's feet. A, a long day walking around the dusty streets, her feet would have been filthy, filthy dirty. And here's Mary who takes this ointment and she pours it on Jesus' feet. And not only that, she takes her hair and she begins to wipe his feet. 
ladies. Or men, if you got longer hair. See, Judas knows the cost of the ointments, as he says later. It's a year's wage. A year's wage that she's pouring out on Jesus' feet. It's almost three times as much as Judas will accept for betraying Jesus. In the midst of this beautiful picture, Judas opens up his big, insincere mouth. See, Mary gives Jesus a tribute of humility and devotion. That was the outcome. As, as Jesus is laying at table with Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, she pours out her heart to Jesus in an act of humility and devotion by pouring out a year's worth of ointment on his feet and then gets nice and close and begins to clean his feet. She gave a year's wage to pour on his feet. I don't know about you, but this is a challenge for me a bit. And I hope it is for you too. What is the price you are willing to pay to be a, a disciple of Jesus Christ? We are saved by God's amazing grace. We don't work to be saved. But my generosity and my heart to serve comes out of the amazing grace that God has poured out on my life. So let me follow up with another one. What is your most treasured possession? Is it your stock portfolio? Maybe then you need to think it through a little bit more. Maybe one way you can place Jesus first is by giving sacrificially from the treasured assets of love for your Savior. And as I think about that point, I am unbelievably blessed by godly parents. I am so thankful for my parents. I've, I've talked to you about this before, about how growing up, uh, I had to wear byway shoes because my dad was cheap. At least that's how I felt it was. Like, dad, these are byway shoes. Like, come on, man. Like, can I have some LA gear light up shoes? Like, Remember those? Those are awesome. They should bring those back. But I remember growing up, and I didn't see this at first, and I never knew about what my parents were doing until later in my life. But something I have learned is how my parents were an example to me of what it means to give sacrificially to God's mission and to give to the church. I had to wear byway shoes so that my dad could give more money to the cause of God. Did I need LA gear shoes? No. I was like 10. I was going to grow out of them in six months anyways. But something I've learned about that, if that's by, through offering or being generous to their pastor or supporting missionaries, my parents' house is now a way station for missionaries uh, who are on furlough, and they aren't going to be listening, so I can talk about this for all I want. At least I hope not. They should be in church if they are. But I can brag about my parents. And I'm thankful for that example of what it meant to treasure Christ above my wor worldly things. It's a hard thing, though. 
maybe your favorite treasure is your lifestyle, then you, maybe you should consider giving up recreation to do service in the church or share the gospel with others. Maybe your most treasured uh, treasure is your family. And maybe you want to keep a certain standard of living for your family, which you wouldn't give up to go into full-time Christian work or ministry. Maybe it's a self-image that the worldly uh, world ex- accepts you for so that you will not boldly identify yourself as a Christian anymore. If so, you should examine your heart and recalculate the value of the Lord Jesus Christ, drawing near to him to cultivate the costly devotion of Mary. There's a great book called The Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer, who was executed by the Nazis in World War II. And I think sometimes grace is free, but it's not cheap. And we treat it as cheap. How could I not give whatever I have for the one who gave me everything I need? Christmas is around the corner. If you're like me, I love giving costly gifts. Probably too costly. But I love giving presents. I love watching people open them and, 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 and enjoy them. So why is it so difficult to give costly gifts to Jesus? There's a pastor from England. He was a contemporary of Moody, F.B. Myers. He tells of an occasion when a preacher suggested that his hearers make a love offering to Jesus of something that was especially precious. We love to give costly gifts to each other, so why not make a costly gift to Jesus, he says. As the offering plate was passed, you could just imagine this, right? Jewels and other valuable items filled the trays. But among them was something especially precious. An older woman had given a note stating that her daughter had long wanted to go to far land as a missionary but that this mother has stood in her way, not wanting to part with her. Now, out of love for her, for Christ, she would stand in the way no longer, but would give her daughter up to Jesus to spread his gospel in the world. I'm a parent. I have friends that are in the world where I'm like, I don't know how you even live there. I have friends who are in Sudan right now, or acquaintances in Sudan with family, like kids. And we scoff. Not too long ago, there was a young man who was killed for trying to reach an unreached people group in the Indian Ocean a few years ago, and the media mocked him. Everyone knows not to go to that island because they're just going to kill you. You remember that story, this young man in his 20s? An American? boat dropped him off and he was in his canoe you know what happened a little while later there was another article written by a man named ed stetzer who actually explained some of the background here's a man who prepared everything for everything how he was going to approach he prayed for years about these things for years people mocked him he even tried to get to the island numerous times to try and share. But the tribesmen of that island, eventually they killed him. 
finding his body floating in the ocean. But he gave it for Christ so that other people would know the treasure that he had. Even his own life, he did not value as much as what Christ had done for him. Isn't it amazing to think about how the priceless love of Christ has set us free from our need to possess people and things? If we have Jesus, we have everything that we could ever want or need. But sometimes we have to let go of other things to recognize the preciousness of Christ. So the disciples, including Judas, thinking it's a waste. Judas' concern wasn't even that of Jesus, but money is more about possessions. Judas' concern is fake. He just wanted more money to go buy non-bread down the street. I don't know. And there were, and Jesus rebukes Judas, and Mary is anointing Jesus for what he knows is coming. There will always be poverty in the world, he says, together with the responsibilities of ministering to the poor as an expression of God's love. That's why we're doing Christmas hampers. But the opportunity of being present with Jesus and serving him during his time on this earth would not be repeated. So what is, what's your price? What's your price to give up Jesus? How much money or power or influence would you need to give up Jesus? Instead of recognizing God's hand in Lazarus' resurrection, the religious leaders continued to plot to kill Jesus, and not just Jesus, but also Lazarus as well. Do you see the contrast that is being created between Mary and Judas? It's a pretty bold contrast. It's a very important one. Here's Mary reclining at the feet of Jesus in adoring love, offering extravagant devotion, anointing him for his burial. And Judas sits in condescending arrogance. He's like the guy standing in the corner with his arms crossed, huffing and puffing. We all know that guy. Not only questioning Mary's action, but judging Jesus' willing acceptance of such a gift. See, one is a worshiper, one is a thief. One gives sacrificial honor, the other seeks personal gain. One demonstrates the way of grace, the other the way of sin. And this story should remind us of a similar scene recorded in Luke's gospel where an unnamed sinful woman washed the feet of Jesus with her tears while Simon, a self-righteous Pharisee, murders Jesus in his heart. Those who have been forgiven much love much. The root of that is understanding that you have sinned against a holy God. You want to be more amazed and, and more in wonder of what God has done for you? Grow in your understanding of his holiness. Those who are greedy for much are greedy for more. So which one are you? Are you the one who loves much because you have been forgiven of much? Because you have been. If you're in Christ, I was reflecting upon this this morning as I was praying. I am so undeserving of what God has done in my life. So undeserving. Are you the greedy person who's just, who is just becoming more greedy? Judas didn't see what Jesus was giving. Mary did. 
and she was willing to give sacrificially in light of what Jesus had done and would do. So what do we do with all of this? Here is an example of what it looks like when people don't want Jesus. But in there, we also see examples of what it looks like for people to want Jesus. To accept Jesus. The main point here is to accept Jesus is to give up everything to receive all we need. Think of the choice made by the Jewish leaders in Judas. What are we choosing instead of him? What do, instead of Jesus, what do we fear we will lose if we accept Jesus? Do we think we will succeed by rejecting Jesus? Will what we try to keep for ourselves ever compare with what God promises to do for us? If we acclaim Jesus in faith, everything in our lives will deepen in sacred significance. If we reject Jesus we will unwittingly aid God in accomplishment of his purpose. Yet he will only, but we will only be harming ourselves. Judas loved money more than Jesus, but money isn't God. Money is not alive. Money cannot raise the dead. No matter how rich you are, you still die. Dust to dust. Money is meant to represent value. It is, not, it is a currency. We gain money for what we provide or how we serve, and then we exchange that reward we gained by our in ingenuity, our own efforts for things that we need or want. Money will not shepherd us. Money will not teach us truth. Money will not give itself in our place. Money is not, the right, money is not at the right hand of God interceding for us. Money will not give us its righteousness so that we are justified before God. Mary understood. Mary understood what Jesus came to do. Judas did not. Money is a means to an end, and Jesus is an end in himself. To accept Jesus is to give up everything to receive all we need. Let us continue to worship our awesome God together.